Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green, and in this episode, we're going to be travelling imaginatively to medieval Damascus. And we're going to be visiting a remarkable medieval library. Remarkable because it's the earliest library for which a catalogue of its contents has survived. A catalogue which, as we'll see, allows us to reconstruct that library and its contents. The library that we're going to be looking at has the name of the Ashrafia. It was named after the man who endowed it, Al-Malik al-Ashraf, who was a nephew of the famous Salahuddin ibn Ayyub, better known as Saladin, who fought with the Crusaders and moreover with the Shiite rulers of Egypt. He's often associated with having led or participated in a Sunni revival across the Middle East. But what we'll see by looking at the contents of the library that he endowed around his mausoleum beside the celebrated Umayyad Mosque in Damascus is that the books that survived in that medieval library were in fact a lot more diverse, a lot more heterodox and orthodox than that notion of a Sunni revival might suggest. But what's perhaps most remarkable about the Ashrafia Library was its sheer normalness, its sheer ordinariness. In its own day, it was far from famous. There were many more uh, celebrated, larger, richer and better known libraries, just in Damascus, let alone in other cities across the Middle East. But it's that sheer ordinariness of the library, along with the unique survival of its catalogue, that makes it important. Because despite that regular run-of-the-mill quality of the Ashrafia, it held over 2,000 books in the 13th century. That's a really striking number that when we consider that even Cambridge University, with all of its many colleges, would take another century or more to hold a similar number of around 2,000 books in total. The Ashrafia Library then gives us an insight into this booming and flourishing and intellectually as well as theologically diverse landscape of books in the medieval Middle East. Guiding us through the library is Conrad Herschler. He's a professor of Middle Eastern history at the Institute of Islamic Studies and the Center for the Study of Manuscript Cultures at the University of Hamburg in Germany. And he's the author of Medieval Damascus, Plurality and Diversity in an Arabic Library, which was published by Edinburgh University Press in 2016 and was awarded the Biennial Best Book Prize by the Middle East Medievalist Society.
Hello, Conrad. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hi, Niall. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Well, today we're going to be talking about the medieval Arabic world of books, because from the time of the, the revelation of the Quran, books and particularly books and texts in Arabic were essential for Muslim religiosity. And of course, for what becomes Arabic intellectual life and indeed literary, philosophical, as well as religious life more generally. From the 7th and 8th century, the paper route, I suppose, as we might say, more than the, the Silk Route from China, allowed the, the expansion of, of writing and, of course, of reading throughout the Middle East. And a really important part of this that we'll be talking about today was the establishment of, of libraries. Libraries that really, as we might touch on, dwarfed the, the size of their medieval contemporaries in, in Europe. So these kind of libraries in, in Middle Eastern cities, we'll be talking particularly about Damascus, provided the, I suppose we might say, the intellectual and institutional context and infrastructure for medieval Islamic studies, as well as, I suppose, medieval uh, Arabic studies. So to begin, Conrad, could you start us off by painting a, a broader picture of this medieval Arabic world of books? Oh, um, thank you very much, Niall. As, as you said, I mean, from the seventh century, we see that not only Islam, but also Arabic as a language is spreading throughout the Middle East, North Africa, into Central Asia. And it's starting to replace other languages in the Middle East, especially Greek and Persian. But it has to be said that other languages stay there. So the Middle Eastern world of books is not an Arabic books exclusively, but it remains a multilingual um, world for many, many centuries. But we are talking about Arabic um, today. And what is quite striking is that these societies were highly literate societies. And, and that's evident from the two main windows which we have on the world of the written world, which is A, documents and B, books. And the number of documents which survives from the 8th, 9th, 10th, century and so on is simply amazing. Um, there are still large corpora of documents, large groups of documents in different libraries in the world, which are virtually untouched so far. And the other um, point are books. Um, and that's obviously the main topic we'll be discussing today. And the books really start to kick off in the course of the 9th and 10th century. Um, that's when we have the paper revolution. And I am deeply convinced that the paper revolution is much more important than the print revolution. It's only we in Europe are so excited about print revolution because it's something which for once happened in Europe. Um, but if you look at the long-term development of writerly culture and, 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 and how human societies interact with the written world, it's more the paper revolution which has changed the course of human history. And so in the ninth and 10th century, as you said, paper came over from the East, from China and started to replace the other um, um, materials, parchment um, and papyri, parchment, basically leather, um, very expensive. Um, you have to slaughter a lot of cheeps in order to, um, to produce a big book. And papyri, which is made out of a plant in Egypt, um, not very easy to handle. Um, so paper was just perfect. And with paper, the codex um, started to develop. And the codex is a fancy word, but it basically means just book. So 
any book which we have on our bookshelf is a codex. Today it's a printed codex, back then it was a handwritten codex, but then in the 9th, 10th century we see this technical form of the written word spreading throughout the empire region, and then we have a high number of books. And the high number of books is evident for us, for example, if we look at the topics which books are suddenly dealing with. So these are not only the high-end, very theoretical, philosophical, theological topics, but suddenly we see books on cooking. So we have cooking books, we have recipes books, so we have started to have books on a much more mundane level. And that certainly shows to what extent from the 10th century onwards in the Middle East, we have societies which, 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 which are not um, only very prone to use documents, but also very prone to use books in order to communicate, in order to manage information. And it's important to say, and that's why libraries are so important, um, books did not only circulate in elite spaces. Certainly they did circulate in elite spaces, in palaces, um, and they did also not only circulate in religious spaces. Um, in Europe, for example, the monasteries um, were very important um, for book holdings and, and provisioning society with books. In the Middle East, it's a very different story. So we have a lot of books outside of palaces and outside of religious spaces. Books are widely spread in societies because there were so many of them. And one of the, of, the, of the shapes and the institutions which became important um, to, to, to hold books, to make books available, to, to, to produce also books, to copy books, etc., were libraries spread throughout the, the urban topography. We will come to that um, later on. But one point I already want to stress um, and, and right away is that many of these libraries, which we will encounter, were lending libraries, which again is quite unusual for that period. If you compare it, let's say, with the classical Latin European monastery libraries, where it was rather rare that as a trader, you walked in and took out a book and came back after three weeks. Or if you walked into some court, um, to the court in Paris, um, again, as a trader, it was rather difficult for you to, to come in. So the fact that libraries in the Middle East um, were often lending libraries meant that the written word was spread quite widely throughout urban topography. Well, that's so interesting that you've given us this sense of the, the kind of the, the material, the, the technological background to the, the, the rise of, of books and the, the rise of libraries. I mean, I think it's sort of interesting, isn't it? We, we tend now to automatically think of the, the Quran as a as a book as a as a codex as, as you've explained and uh, but this in a sense is a, is a kind of part of a, a historical evolution the word as, as as many listeners will know the word quran means that which was recited so it has this sense of of in a sense kind of theologically and in religious terms something that that muslims believe was uh, recited through the angel gabriel or jibreel to the Prophet Muhammad, but there's also this sense this was a book that was in some ways between a, a, a literary, a writerly culture and, and an oral culture. And mm. indeed, the, the term for, for Bible comes from, you know, that kind of Greek context of a, of a of that we get the word bibliography from, from a book of codex, which is evolving in this period, albeit in a different place of, uh, 
in the more the Mediterranean Middle East. And in, in the end, it was um, I mean I mean Islamic society and thus to a large extent Arabic speaking societies they developed in, in in the framework of societies which already had been literate. So in the Greek speaking and Persian and speaking societies of modern day Iran, Egypt, and Syria, and so on. But what is really important is to what extent the not the discovery of paper this is not how technological change work but the decision of societies to adopt a new technology in this sense paper then really was a was was a game changer and and what started on a relatively modest level in the seventh century and where you have a highly oral um, um society centered also around the quran as a quite oral book in many sense um, then um, started to be a, a highly highly literate society, and it's amazing to see um, how this technological change and, and decision um, by these societies um, really changed um, the course of how they managed information and how information was circulated. Yeah, that's important, isn't it? This sense that, that yeah, this isn't necessarily a technologically driven history. There are sort of human decisions, perhaps kind of cultural demands or, or tastes or preferences that are involved here. And as you mentioned, I mean, what, what's really just quite extraordinary is, is not just the appearance of, of, of such uh, well-endowed, financially well-endowed libraries that we'll be talking about, and indeed well-stocked, but, but as you've really rather intriguingly mentioned already, that these were lending libraries. Just as you said that, I was really struck by the, the image from my, my own childhood visits to, uh, to the famous change library at Hereford <laughs> Cathedral, where the medieval right. library, where the books were, of course, of such value, and indeed these parchment uh, very expensive books that were, were necessarily then chained to the to the shelves. So yes, just you know, kind of the very opposite of a, a lending library. Quite literally, mm -hmm. a library sort of held together by iron chains. But let's turn to a specific library, albeit not in Hereford, some way away then, which is uh, the Ashrafia Library, founded in Damascus during the 13th century. So. Can you tell us how and moreover why was the library established? Yeah, um, the the Ashrafia um, is not a particularly important library. One one has to mention it's just the one for which we have documentation, and we will return to that probably later on several times because it's very important um, to mention. So the general framework of of what is changing um, from the eleventh and twelfth century onwards in cities and towns all across the Middle East is the massive multiplication of endowed institutions. Um, so the Arabic term is waqf, um, and that might be mosques, um, madrasas, um, i.e. institutions of learning, colleges, khankas, Sufi convents, um, so a whole range of things can be con uh, supported by waqfs. And many of these institutions, be it a mosque, a madrasa, a khanka, often had libraries. Um, so the libraries we are talking about are not standalone libraries. That's something that will happen much later. That's 17th, 18th century when standalone libraries start to appear in the Middle East. So they were always part of institutions um, that were often multifunctional also. So a mosque and a madrasa is often difficult to, to differentiate for us in practice as historians. Quite often we don't know what to call it um, because they have these functions. And um, as much as Baghdad, Cairo and Aleppo, Damasco, Damascus was also affected by this change. 
Um, and Damascus was certainly one of the centers of the cultural life in the region. Um, it's important to say it's what was not part of a big empire. Often when we, when we think about the medieval Middle East, we see the big empires there. No, it, it was a very small city-state. Basically, think of Venice, think of Florence. That was Damascus during that period. And we see that dozens or hundreds of endowments are established all across the cities by members of the political elite of that cities and also by members of the social elite. So the traders of Damascus also start to endow uh, mosques, madrasas, and so on. And the Ashrafia was part of this broader development. Um, it was one of the dozens um, of endowments being set up in Damascus and one of thousands of endowments being set up all across the Middle East. And that um, particular endowment um, was set up by the ruler of the city. So, so he was really a ruler of, of that city, nothing else, um, called Al-Malik Al-Ashraf. Um, don't worry, he's not a very important figure in Middle Eastern history. Um, and um, what he did, he built a mausoleum, um, i.e. the place where he wanted to be buried. And he built that right next to the Umayyad Mosque. That's where you wanted to have your mausoleum, obviously. Um, because there, to the north of the Umayyad Mosque in Damascus, you had virtually a mausoleum lane, i.e. a whole road with mausolea, including the one by the famous Saladin, Salahidin, um, who also had his mausoleum there. So this is really at the heart of the religious and political and, and cultural prestige of the city where he built his institution and his library. And just to sort of clarify, this, this is the, 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 the great Umayyad mosque built in the period 661 to 750 when Damascus was the, the center of the, the early Arab Umayyad Caliphate. So it is one of the great mosques in the world, and certainly one of the great mosques of the medieval Islamic world. But yeah, just to clarify that. So do yeah, do do tell us then more about the you know these reasons for the establishment of the library. Yeah. So so um, sadly, the Ashrafia the Ashrafia building does not exist anymore, um, and that's partly because it is next to this amazing mosque. So in the late nineteenth century, Damascus experienced a period of intensive modernization, urban modernization, enlargements of streets, creating of spaces, as we see it all around the world. And so this mausoleum lane was seen as a real problem um, by the urban planners. And so they destroyed most, most of the buildings and the Ashrafia building was also destroyed. So we have very little feeling of the actual building. Um, but coming back to Al-Malik Al-Ashraf, um, he not only built this mausoleum, he had previously built other scholarly institutions in Damascus. Um, and he did that because he wanted to leave a lasting monument in the urban topography. And he wanted also to be the patron of the civilian elites, of the scholars. So this is not a story of oriental despots brutally ruling a city, but this is a story of a ruler who wanted and had to connect with the larger society in Damascus. And so the mausoleum he built was not only meant to be his burial place, but also a place of scholarly activities, i.e. a kind of small college. Um, and it was meant to be a college dedicated to the teaching of Quran recitation, which obviously is very appropriate for a mausoleum, um, that the Quran is recited next to your burial ground. And as any other scholarly institution in that period, 
al-Malik al-Ashraf equipped this mausoleum in small college with a library to provide books for the scholars and students frequenting it. Obviously, there needed to be some kind of library. And what is interesting is how he built this, this, the, the stock of the library. And he had two main sources. First of all, he transferred his royal library. Um, I.e., the library which he had in the citadel was after his death or shortly before transferred to the mausoleum. And we see that because there were quite fancy manuscripts on the shelves of that um, library. But perhaps even more interesting is that the second source of the books of that library of the Ashrafia was another institution which had previously stood on the same grounds, um, a small oratory, a praying um, a building for praying, which was a nuisance for Al-Malik al-Ashraf when he wanted to build his fancy mausoleum, so he had it torn down. And he not only destroyed that oratory, but he transferred that library into his library. <laughs> so these books stayed in the same place, but in a new institution. And the, the, the fascinating bit is that the person who had built the small praying institution um, came from a large administrative family which had its root in Egypt. And his father had worked for the Fatimids. And this is a dynasty which is very different from the world of Al-Malik Al-Ashraf. Most importantly, because Al-Malik Al-Ashraf is part of Sunni Islam, um, what, today we can call mainstream Islam, whereas the Fatimids belong to an offshot of Shiite Islam. We know the 12 Shiites in Iran today, but the Fatimids belong even to a further offshot from that branch. And so that library in Sunni Damascus goes back in part to a Fatimid library in Egypt. And we will come back to that later on, I assume, um, when we will see that the, 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 the intellectual profile of that library is not necessarily a profile than what that one would have expected in a Sunni mausoleum dedicated to Quran recitation. <laughs> Well, that's so very interesting. That sort of you know embedded in in in, in that uh, uh, background that you've you've laid out for us of how the the Ashrafia Library came to be established is is this shifting political dynastic uh, confessional Shi'i or, or Ismaili Shi'i and then Sunni and indeed I suppose in some senses a sort of a, the mixed ethnic. Uh, uh, landscape of uh, of the the Levant of the Middle East in this period, the, it, insofar um, as I'm sure as you you're going to say that uh, Malik al Ashraf, at least being the, the nephew Saladin Saladin Ibn Ayyub, the, the famous defeat of the Crusaders, but more importantly the, the of the defeat of the Ismaili uh, Fatimid was uh, of a Kurdish family. Yeah, and and the, the the administrators whose books ultimately ended up in the Ashrafia, he was Salahuddin's main administrator, who he really made his newly built empire running. But previously, he had been the administrator of the Fatimids, of the Shiites, for many years, and basically was really the key person in running a Shiite empire. So these individuals could quite easily move over to another dynasty without being accused of 
being of a dubious background, potentially heretic or whatsoever. But we see that there is a large degree of fluidity when it comes to the religious affiliations. Um, we have Armenians um, who suddenly are the crucial persons in running Muslim empires <laughs> um, who must be of Christian background. And we never hear whether they convert or not, um, but they take on Muslim um, names. Um, and at the same time, the, the as you said, I mean, the ethnic configuration is, is, is highly complex. And Al-Malik Al-Ashraf himself, himself certainly came from this Kurdish family, going back to Salahidin and then um, back to the Southern Caucasus. But um, he himself, before he ruled Damascus, he had ruled Northern Mesopotamia, what is today Eastern Turkey. So think of Diyarbakir, um, for example, that's what, what his, his, his previous um, principality had been. And over there, you had a highly multi-religious, probably at that point, it was still majority Christian and multilingual. Um, Al-Malik Al-Ashraf was deeply influenced by Persianate learning at that point. You, you already have the Renaissance of Persianate learning. And in that region, um, this was quite popular and a lot of the scholars had adopted Persian as, as their language and certainly a very complicated ethnic um, makeup. So if we speak about Sunni, Islam, Arabic library, um, this is a depressingly reductionist description of what is going on there. It's, it's terms which we use in order to communicate because people understand us. And if we say Arabic, they, they can place it somewhere in the, the broader world. But in an analytical sense, the term Arabic library is not particularly helpful. And certainly not helpful is the term um, Muslim um, library, because I mean, this is such a catch-all term um, that if we start to to call any library which was endowed by a Muslim ruler or Muslim trader or Muslim scholar a Muslim or Islamic library then we end up with such a multitude of different libraries um, that analytically there's there's no point um, to it I mean apart from the Ashrafia library um, I, I, I um, subsequently worked on a library which also existed in um, Damascus um, 150 years later. And these two libraries virtually have nothing to do one with another if you look at the content on the books of the shelves. And this is the same city. I mean, we're we not talking about Islam in Maghreb and Islam in, in South Asia. You know, no, no. I mean, it's both Damascus. They were um, 1.5 kilometers apart. Um, but um, they, they, they share very little in terms of the intellectual world um, which they represent and, and, and the authors they were interested in. And another um, project of mine is, is on a library in Jerusalem, um, more or less contemporaneous. Well, it's 100 years later than the Ashrafia. And Jerusalem is not far away from Damascus. Um, it's, 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 it's um, just round the corner. And again, it's a completely, once again, it's a third intellectual world, which I encountered there. This is tremendously important, uh, I think, actually, Conrad, the point you've been making that, 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 uh, 
in a sense, the importance of 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 catalogs, the the, the Ashrafia catalog that you've you, you've written about in your book, and you've used to to and that we're we're using our conversation, or you're using to will be to to explain to us that the library, that the the Ashrafia catalog in in the in the twelve seventies then is the earliest known Arabic library catalog, and and then as you also mentioned in your book, we have the, the famous tenth century catalogue of the Baghdadian bookseller, Ibn al-Nadim. And, and as you've alluded to now as well, what's really important is that, that these, on the one hand, these catalogues show us that there's actually a range of different topics that will be really sort of reductive, foolish even, to classify as Islamic. As you already mentioned, the cookbooks that crop up in Ibn al-Nadim's uh, bookseller catalogue from 10th century Baghdad, or indeed the translations of Greek or indeed of kind of uh, Indian mathematics that we might call Hindu mathematics, but that might in turn be another kind of reductionism. So we have to be sort of careful on the one hand with, with these kind of labels then, because we're actually looking about what the contents of bookshops or indeed libraries were, was, was often sort of a range of, of subjects from a range of kind of cultural or religious context. And the other thing that I think is really sort of important and implicit in what you've said is that these catalogues are really important to us partly because they're so rare, but 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 more fully, I think, because they prevent us, they kind of form almost like an intellectual check on us seeing them, in this case, the medieval past, through the lenses of, let's say, later catalogues, later configurations of learning, later kind of syllabi by which we might think of, of understanding the medieval Islamic, Arabic, or however we might categorize these parts that have been created by, let's say, later Western scholars and their libraries, later Muslim scholars and institutions and their libraries, or indeed later Arab nationalists, or indeed, you know, kind of other Middle Eastern nationalists with their own linguistic and perhaps secular profile of libraries. So these medieval catalogues are really important kind of historical check on sort of re-reading the past through later intellectual and institutional um, kind of configurations of what a book collection would look like. But let's, before we actually delve into the catalogue itself, which has been really at the core of your, your fascinating book, using the catalogue, I suppose, at a meta level, can you, can you take us on an imaginary tour then of the Ashrafia Library, insofar as you've been able to reconstruct the library and indeed its its bookshelves. Yeah. Um, so um, I mean, I think as most sane people, when when I started to do Middle Eastern history, I was not um, imagining that I would be interested in library catalogs. I mean, what could be more boring than writing a book a book about a library catalog? But um, they are a fascinating source, as I increasingly learned. And what I said early on about the medieval Arabic world of books. I mean, the problem is that most information we have are from chronicles, um, from history books, from reports about other people doing something. And we have very little actual documents which give us an insight into the library. And so the Ashrafia library um, catalog was, 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 this is an amazing find to take us into the actual day-to-day -day working of a library and, 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 and what it looked like. And the, the 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 first point which has to do be be made is that the Ashrafia Library contains some two thousand books, 
on its shelf. So, so that's um, already an, an impressive number and it's impressive because it's there in the catalog. It's not somebody telling us, but, but we know it was, it's actually there. And to put that in context, if you take um, Cambridge University, um, if you take all the libraries of the different colleges of Cambridge University together, you will have to wait another 200 years, i.e. to the late 15th century, before you come to 2000 books. So this run-of-the-mill Ashrafia library, which, as I said, is not an outstanding endowment. It's only outstanding because its catalog has survived. It, it, it was rather a minor player within the topography of Damascus and within the topography, the cultural topography of the Middle East. Nobody knew about the Ashrafia mausoleum. And this library had 2,000 books as much as Cambridge University in the late 15th century. So this is why I, it is, I'm quite convinced that these societies are highly bookish and highly literate societies. Okay, um, so um, taking us um, on a tour to the Ashrafia, as I said, the building was torn down, um, so there was no chance for me to survey an existing building. But luckily, a plan of the building was drawn in the late 19th century before the building was destroyed. Um, and from that, at least, we know that the Ashraf Ashrafia mausoleum had three main rooms next to each other. And there is a second strike of luck. And um, this is um, the main reason why it was possible to write the book on this library. And this is that the library um, catalog itself has survived and that it offers us a lot of clues about the interior of the library. It has to be said that this was a very sophisticated catalog. And that's important to say because it shows that even though the Ashrafia was a run-of-the-mill um, mausoleum and also library, it was embedded in a very wide library landscape and also cataloging landscape. Whoever wrote that, I have a theory, but it's not very important who wrote it, um, clearly had seen many different catalogs and had a clear idea of how to organize such a catalog. And that catalog provides a lot of evidence for the spatial organization of the library. And when you combine this information in the catalog with the description of other medieval libraries, which we have in texts, we have description um, of other libraries. And what is very beautiful is we have a lot of, no, well, not a lot of, but numerous, let's say numerous illustrations of medieval libraries from the Arabic Middle East. And with all these information, it was possible to get a fairly exact picture of the organization of this libraries. So in concrete terms, um, the, the books were placed in one room. It's the Eastern room. You know, as I said, there are three rooms next to each other, and they were placed in the Eastern room in the mausoleum. And that provided enough space for the books. Because these more than 2000 books required a lot of bookcases in order to store them um, in the library. And um, it's a number of over 25 meter of running bookcases, which you need in order to store these books in a relatively reasonable and relatively safe way without building piles of books, which are too dangerous of, of, of um, falling on the users in that libraries. And it's fairly likely that these bookcases were actually placed against the walls. So they were not placed in the room. Um, and that's a 
typical feature of pre-modern libraries because what you needed was light and what you wanted was natural light, daylight, sun. What you did not want in a library was artificial light. You did not want any kind of fire in a library. So what you did was to place the books against the wall and have a window um, above um, the bookcases or on, the, on a wall which was not covered um, by bookcases, which um, was the light source so that the users could browse through the shelves or could sit down um, and read the book in the library um, itself. And if we continue this, this virtual tour and if we now go to the bookshelves, what would really strike you as a user is how amazingly well they were organized on the shelves. Because they were organized in the alphabetical order of the book titles. You had section A, you had section B, section C, and so on. And within each letter, there was a division according to the book size. So you had the normal size books on one part of the bookcase and the small books um, in another part. And this was just for reasons of efficiency. Because if you pile up books of different sizes, you end up with very unstable and very inefficient um, book piles. But then you had a third way of organizing the books and that's a thematic organization so each letter was this was 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 organized in 15 thematic sections section five history section six pre-islamic poetry section nine astronomy section 10 medicine and so on so if you were a user of that library either you knew you the title and then you could go to the alphabetical place, you would know it, it's not too difficult to sort out. Or let's say you would be interested in medicine. Then you would know in each letter, it's section 10, which is on medicine. So you would go to letter A, letter B, letter C, letter D, not, you know, it's not as nice as online browsing, but for a pre-modern manual um, system, it was a very efficient system to provide even users who were not um, let's say very closely attached to the library and or the institution, i.e. users who perhaps only came in for a day or for a week um, of using the library, that they could pretty quickly make sense out of the organization and could identify where um, the books were um, on the shelves which they wanted. And the library, so, so, so this is basically if we look at the shelves, if we then would turn around and basically face the room um, of, of, of that, um, the library room, there would be no furniture. You know, it's not a monastery, so there would be no tables, there would be no chairs or anything on that. So it was basically an open space on which readers would sit down to read. So that would have been fairly common that you would take out a book from the shelf, sit down on the floor or go to one of the neighboring rooms um, and read your book there. But as, I, um, as, as, as we discussed earlier on, um, many libraries during that period were lending libraries and the Ashrafia was one of those libraries which allowed users to take out book. So if we imagine the library space, I think it's very important to keep in mind that people took out books and 
left the building and were using the books outside of the building so that so to say the the the, the library space cannot be restricted to the building itself but Ashrafia books were circulating within the cities the the Umayyad mosque was just opposite so you could go into the Umayyad mosque with its massive courtyard or into the prayer room itself sit down and read you could take it home you could go to a market you could go to another mausoleum to madrasa to khanka i mean it's a very um widespread topography and thus the 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 the, the impact um of the library um was 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 well beyond um its wall and was visible um, throughout the center of Damascus um, that was brimming with other libraries, institutions, paper markets, book markets, writers offering the service to write letters or petitions um, and so on. So in short, this sophisticated library as we see it in the Ashrafia was only one part of a vast network in which the written word was produced, in which the written word was stored, used and circulated. And the great thing about the Ashrafia is only that its library catalog has survived. Without the library catalog, the doors to that library would have remained shut to us forever. And because of the dozens, and I believe over 100 other libraries in Damascus, which existed there at the same time, because we don't have these documents, we don't have the catalogs. Sadly, the doors to these libraries will remain shut. So that's really fascinating, because what, what you've suggested to us, or really sort of explained to us there, Conrad, is, is that by looking so very, very closely at the at the, the Ashrafia library there, you know, through its catalog, we, we're getting this, this, this insight into this much wider topography of reading and indeed this larger landscape of libraries, whether within Damascus, across uh, uh, Syria and, and across the, the Middle East more broadly. Because uh, as you've also sort of uh, hinted at, that the, the Ashrafia and the the 13th century isn't founded sort of ex nihilo it's 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 developing then at a certain point in the in the the i guess the history of, of not only libraries then in in the middle east but also a certain point in the history of librarianship and i thought i sort of dwell on that sort of distinction just just briefly i mean because as you've explained on one hand there's the building here which has certain kind of architectural similarities with perhaps the, I'm, I'm thinking when you talked about the light and the windows, you know, it made me think of the scriptoria, the, the writing rooms of, of medieval monasteries with the necessity of their windows and, and of course light shedding there onto the, the tables onto which monks produce books. But as you've noted, this is really quite distinctive because for one thing that the table wasn't widespread and for another element, this wider topography of reading meant that as a lending library, unlike the, the chained library of Hereford I brought up then, that the people could take the libraries elsewhere. So there's not only the sense of people knew how to build a library, that you kind of need windows and you can have the wall for bookshelves opposite the, the windows, but, but also I think we're getting a glimpse from what you've explained of the emergence of, of librarianship. Because like any other kind of technology or institution, you know, you, you mentioned the internet, and of course it's it's only now within several decades into internet usage that we're finding ways, different ways, competing ways, and perhaps what will settle into more institutionalized and standardized ways of, of using the internet, whether for intellectual purposes or otherwise. So, 
presumably then in this case, libraries then, books, the rooms where you stick books then precede librarianship. And, and we're getting that sense then in the Ashrafia catalogue, as you've explained then, that by the 1270s, when the catalogue's written then, that we get this, this expertise of the cataloger has read other catalogues, you know, it's what a catalogue should do. And, 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 uh, and um, you know, a certain sense of, of knowing how to shelve books as well, and the other aspects of, of librarianship. Yeah, I mean, you're entirely right. And, and I mean, that's, that's certainly still a topic which will um, um, need, need much more research. But, but what is amazing is that this is not some kind of prestige catalog, which is written on expensive paper, which is dedicated to a patron, which is being submitted to, 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 to perhaps the son of the of Al-Malik Al-Ashraf or anything like that. But it's actually a, 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 a piece of working paperwork. Um, so what we get here is, is a fairly average librarian writing in a fairly average small scale, small scale for the Middle East, um, small scale library um, and using a, a, a sophisticated system, um, which certainly shows that if only <laughs> we would have the catalogs of the other um, institution of the really big fishes in the library ponds of Damascus, Cairo, Baghdad, and the other cities, that probably we would see an amazingly developed and sophisticated world of how people dealt um, with books and how to organize their books. Yeah, in, indeed, because, yeah, I mean, what's so special then about the, the Ashrafir is it is it's kind of its sheer norm, normality, isn't it? It's sheer kind of averageness, kind of paradoxically perhaps because and, and what's so special crucially then is that its library sorry its catalog uh, survived so delving more 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 deeply then into that catalog what does what does its contents then the contents of the catalog tell us about the the intellectual profile of of the book holder, book holdings in such an average medieval middle eastern arabic based library yeah um, I mean, the, the, the intellectual profile was really one of the most surprising features of this um, project, because when I started out and then I understood um, what this library catalog is, well, first of all, I had to understand it's a library catalog, because it's, it's not that clear, but then it became clear into which institution it belonged, I was fairly disappointed. Because, as I said, I mean, the Ashrafia mausoleum clearly ranked towards the bottom end of the educational institutions in the city. In terms of size, reputation, big scholars did not want to teach in the Ashrafia Mausoleum. You wanted to be somewhere else. And what is even more, the patron, so Al-Malik Al-Ashraf, does not have a very good reputation in modern scholarship. He's generally depicted as a very narrow-minded ruler, who had little sympathy for scholars who engaged in disciplines such as philosophy, for example. He's, he's depicted as a very anti-philosophy ruler. Um, so somebody fitting a rather, let's say, preconceived image of a narrow-minded Sunni ruler of that period. Um, so when that became clear to me that the catalog came out of that institution and that the patron was that ruler, I was wondering what could I expect from a library, um, which is in such a small mausoleum and where the teaching activity 
was focused on Quran recitation out of all intellectual activities. I mean, is that really the one where you would expect the, the intellectual heavyweight um, books um, to be placed? So my assumption was that I would encounter a fairly limited diet of books um, linked to the Quran, linked to the recitation, and linked to other fields of knowledge that we would describe in modern scholarship as religious. Obviously, that's a term which, which does not really make sense for the 13th century we are speaking about, um, but for the sake of argument, um, religious in the sense of um, disciplines which are closely um, connected um, to the revelation of the Quran or the life and um, teachings of the Prophet Muhammad and the interpretation of the revelation and um, the teachings of Prophet Muhammad. So one of the typical religious field would be hadith, for example. And that's what I expected to be there, i.e. hadith reports on the sayings and deeds of the Prophet Muhammad. Yet, if we look at what is actually there, books from discipline, such as Quran recitation and hadith, so let's say the religious disciplines, only constituted one-fifth, 20%, of the holdings of these libraries. And this is quite amazing, as we had always assumed that libraries and scholarly institutions, such as madrasas um, or mausolea with teaching elements, that these libraries were geared towards serving the intellectual profile of its teaching. So if you would have a madrasa on hadith um, teaching, you would expect that a lot of hadith works would be in that library. If you would have a, a madrasa um, specializing in fiqh, in Islamic law, you would expect a lot of law books to be on a shelf. And so the expectation would have been in a mausoleum specializing in Quran recitation, you would have a lot of books related to Quran and, and, and recitation on the shelf. But this is clearly not this case. But what we find on the shelves of this library is rather a wide range of disciplines, including medicine. As I said, I mean, there was a whole section dedicated to medicine in that library. We have books on pharmacology. Um, we have books on falconry. We have books on mathematics, on agriculture, on geography. Um, for example, we have works on astronomy by Euclid. We have uh, books on philosophy by Plato, medicine by Garland. Hippocrates, Rufus of Ephesus. We have books on political thought by Socrates and Aristotle, dream interpretation by Artemidorus of Ephesus. So, I mean, we are speaking about a mausoleum dedicated to Quran recitation, and we find a fairly rich diet of classical authors in various disciplines on a shelf. And what is perhaps even more fascinating is that many of these titles were held in multiple copies. For example, if we go to medicine, um, there's one very important work during this period, which was called Almanac of Health by an author called Ibn Butlan, who is famous, but <laughs> let's say not that well known in, 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 in modern day, um, Europe. Um, and that book was held in 11 copies in this library. So there clearly was the idea that multiple users might come land 
that book, take it out, take it home or read it wherever they were active. Um, so that, uh, that the library offered 11 copies um, of this one almanac of health. Or we have, for example, a pharmacological work of that period called Method of Demonstrating. Um, eight copies on the shelf. So again, a very clear assumption that a lot of users would be interested in medical pharmacological works which they would lend out and which were thus sold in multiple copies. Again, you know, we are talking about a mausoleum geared towards Quran recitation. And the most important fields represented are poetry and adab. Adab is a complicated term. And um, let's say for our purposes here, we describe it as literature. I mean, this is again a modern term, it's kind of awkward, but for the sake of argument, let's call it um, literature so that the listener get a, get a rough idea of what's going on. And poetry and adab. Basically, well over half of the books in this library were for either poetry or adab. And if we dig deeper into poetry, for instance, the kind of poetry which we find on the bookshelves of the Ashrafir was not the poetry which she would have necessarily expected to be on the shelves of a mausoleum devoted to Quran recitation. Very popular was pre-Islamic poetry. <laughs> and again, we find many of these poetic collections in multiple copies on the shelves. The bestseller of pre-Islamic poetry was held in 15 copies. Um, in this library. Um, and among this pre-Islamic poetry, we have, for example, the work by a poet called Ka'ab ibn al-Ashraf. He was an opponent of the Prophet Muhammad, um, and he was put to death for his satirical verses because he made fun um, of this whole story of the whole newly um, emerging religion. It's on the shelves. We have love poetry by Suhaim Abbani al-Hashas, um, which a modern critic described as highly obscene, which I think captures very well. I don't want to quote any lines, but we might run into trouble um, if we would utter these words on a podcast um, and, and would be censored. We have a lot of wine poetry. So poetry basically talking about the consumption of wine, getting drunk and spending a really nice evening with your friends. And we have the poetry by somebody called Ibn al-Hajjaj, who was famous for his sexually explicit poetry and was perhaps the most notoriously, notoriously obscene poet in Arabic. Um, and just that's the last example. Um, closer to the, to the period of the Ashrafia library, we have the poems by Ibn Qusman, who's again celebrated wine drinking and who was quite controversial because he made fun of scholars. And I mean, this is a mausoleum. This is where scholars were. This is where Quran recitation um, took place. And you have poetry by somebody who actually makes fun of exactly the main protagonist in this mausoleum. And so this is one um, large um, groups. What is also interesting when we move away from poetry um, towards something which, let's say, goes more towards theology, towards dogmatic discussions about what is right religion, we have a remarkable array of works by authors 
who were accused of questioning the existence of prophets. So, the, the, I mean, the very core element of monotheistic religions, such as Islam. So there were authors on the shelves who actually questions whether prophets existed, whether Muhammad was a prophet or not. Authors who were accused to be her heretics. Um, and so we have authors who were very far from being mainstream in Sunni Damascus of the 13th century. And that's quite remarkable. So not only that we have the, the, this, this very colorful bunch of poetry, but we have actually books who go to the core of the question, what, is, what does it mean to be Islamic? What does it mean to be Muslim? And what is interesting, we also have quite a number of Shiite titles. As I said, I mean, we are here in Sunni Damascus, we are here in a Sunni institution, we are here in a mausoleum by a ruler who had the reputation to be a fairly narrow-minded um, Sunni ruler. But on the shelves, we find um, clearly books which had a Shiite identity. And the main point, I think, is that this poetry or these dogmatically problematic books might contravene modern notions of how we talk about sexuality, and they might contravene modern notions how we talk about religion. But clearly, during that period, our modern norms were not valid in order to identify what was appropriate to be placed in such a libraries. But these books were in circulation and they were passed down and they were passed down in this mausoleum library that mainly served Quran recitation. So the scholarly world of such a matras, of such a mausoleum library was far more diverse and pluralistic than one might have assumed and as I had assumed when I looked at the catalog for the first time some years ago. That's truly fascinating, comrade, and I think sort of so extremely important as well, because, I mean, as you, as you pointed out, that what, what's so important here is, is not just that these books existed. I mean, any, I don't know, kind of first-year student of, I, I guess, kind of, you know, Arabic literature, Arabic studies is going to know, yeah, as you've mentioned, about the existence of, of the the Khamriyat, the, the, the wine poetry, the pre-Islamic uh, odes and, and so on, uh, or indeed about maybe about erotic poetry. But what's so crucially important about this catalogue is, as you said, that it proves that this is actually in an institution that is actually set up to be, as you've, as you've noted in your book, a Dar al-Hadith, a house for the study of the, the traditions of, of what the Prophet Muhammad said and did. And I think, to my mind as well, within the, let's say, the, the context of Akbar's chamber, I think this is extremely important too, because Akbar's chamber, as regular listeners will know, is named after the, the 17th century debating chamber um, of the Mughal Emperor Akbar, where he had discussions with, with people of various religions, learned people usually about their text, about their ideas, which are often deeply... Uh, uh, distinct and uh, and problematic to to what we would think of as and indeed probably what Akbar at least many of his other courtiers would have thought of as orthodox Sunnism so this is I think sort of really important giving us a sense then of the the intellectual variety and of something without dwelling into that 
another kind of perhaps historically particular concept, but of what we might broadly think of as toleration or openness to ideas or openness to discussion and debate without necessarily agreeing with them. So returning then to the themes after all of, of Akbar's chamber of, of the discussion of Islam, even though we've seen that the contents of this Arabic or in inverted commas Islamic library uh, were so much more, more varied. But what do the books then of the Ashrafia library tell us about Islam in the medieval world more generally? Yeah, um, I think that for me, there are really two points which, which, which I took out of the, 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 the project. The one is the, the question, what is actually an Islamic library? What, what, what does it mean if we use these categories? And I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty standard by now that, that we reflect on it, but it really hit me <laughs> to what extent something which I would have easily called an Islamic library in, in the mausoleum, um, that that actually turns out as a highly complicated being, as, 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 as a very um, complex intellectual world, which, which, which does not fit at all into what I and <laughs> many of my colleagues have thought previously we would have expected in these, these libraries. Um, so, so that's that's one point which, which, which I took out of it. And, and in general, I think it's, 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 I mean, it's banal, but it's important to repeat it over and over again to be aware of how easily we use standard formulation categories, concepts, impose it on the past without really digging into it too deeply and that at some point find out whoa that no it didn't work out that was a major mistake and we have to rethink um, how, how we've represented re that part of the past so far and the second um, point really for me is the diversity of the holdings the vivacity of intellectual life in regions such as Syria throughout the medieval period and beyond. And that's mainly because for a long time we had thought about this period as this kind of post-classical, as this kind of something after the real thing of the golden age of the Abbasid of Baghdad of 9th and 10th century. And no, um, actually, if you go to the to the corner, um, to, the, to the small mausolea on the corner in a city such as Damascus, you see a very, very vivid intellectual life, which we still need to understand and which we need to study in much more detail. Professor Comrad Hirschler, thank you so much for speaking to us in Akbar's Chamber. Yeah, thank you very much, Niall. It was really a pleasure to be here. Da 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 da